This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We talked earlier in the show about how African-Americans are being hurt by the wage gap between them and white Americans. Part of that problem also involves the next topic we discuss, home ownership. A study by the Center for Investigative Reporting shows that blacks are being locked out of home ownership in some cases by the banking industry. Part of that plays out in major metropolitan cities. Part of that also plays out in the South as well. Aaron Glanz is a senior reporter at Reveal, the website behind the Center for Investigative Reporting, and he is covering this story and joins us now. Aaron, welcome. It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So give us the details of what you found, plus the impact of some of these decisions being made by banks. Well, I mean, we wanted to know why is it that if the economy has been in recovery now for almost a decade, that the homeownership gap between blacks and whites is bigger than it was during the Jim Crow era when segregation and discrimination were legal uh, back before the civil rights movement. And what we found was when we poured through 31 million mortgage records, nearly every mortgage application made available through the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act in 2015 and 2016, that even after we accounted for the amount of money a person made and the amount of loans, the size of the loan they were trying to take on and the neighborhood that they were trying to buy in, that there were 61 metropolitan areas around the country, uh, including Philadelphia, uh, where you are, and also Washington, D.C., St. Louis, Detroit, Orlando, um, Tacoma, Washington, Santa Fe, New Mexico, all over the country where people of color uh, were more likely to be turned away when they applied for a conventional mortgage loan, even when they made the same amount of money or were buying to, trying to buy the same amount of house in the same type of neighborhood. So are there, when you're thinking about all those different cities, you're obviously talking about uh, cities that have different sizes, but I would imagine that there is probably on some level a commonality of reasoning why uh, blacks are being locked out as they are. Well, I mean, it really is interesting that there's tremendous diversity in the types of places. So, you know, on that list, there are some cities in the Rust Belt, like Detroit, where banks are not lending in the inner city uh, for certain reasons, you know, like depopulation um, and blight. But then there's other cities on our list, like Santa Fe, New Mexico, which are somewhat wealthy college towns where Latinos are being turned away even when they make the same amount of money as their white counterparts. Um, A lot of the cities, as you mentioned, are in the south, uh, but some of them are also in the northeast. And so, you know, we see this as a real starting point for our investigation. Uh, It's probably uh, not just one reason, but uh, a concomitant of uh, many different reasons. One thing that we learned doing a deep dive and a lot of field reporting in Philly uh, was that, you know, underwriting standards have, you know, firmed up since the Mm -hmm. bust. Banks are being a little bit more conservative uh, with good reason. And we found that um, no one is perfect. A lot of people have blemishes on their credit report. They have an unpaid cell phone bill or a parking ticket to collection or, um, 
maybe they got laid off and in the past and now have a job again, so their back tax returns uh, don't show the kind of perfect consistency that a lender would like. And when that comes along and the person is basically a good bet if they're white, uh, we've seen evidence that the lending officer often works to get that application approved. Uh, whereas we saw time and time again, if the applicant was African-American, um, that the lending officer would say, oh, well, this doesn't fit with our metrics. Goodbye. Um, and so I, I think like that's what I observed in Philly, where we did most of our field reporting. And you, one of the things you bring up also is the fact that uh, that there are situations where some uh, of the people that are not getting these loans have a relatively decent amount of savings to be able to make the payments on that house. It's just the other factors, as you kind of laid out, that are, that are the overriding decision maker here. Well, I mean, bank has to take in all kinds of things. And the, the, the lending industry is reacted very negatively to our story. They point out that there are some details that we don't have. Like, for example, we do not have the applicant's credit score. We also don't right. have the applicant's overall debt-to-income ratio taking into account, you know, their student loans and car payments and stuff like that. And, um, and the reason we don't have that information is because even though banks were supposed to start reporting this seven years ago under the Dodd-Frank Act, they have been fighting it every step of the way. So the banks are kind of doing this weird misdirect where they're saying there's no problem here. It's all explained by the data that you don't have. But, of course, the reason we don't have that data is because they've been fighting to keep it secret. What, what then do you think then is the impact, especially when you're talking about big cities and like here in Philadelphia, where – uh, you may be able to have somebody that, as you allude to in your story, somebody that may have one missed payment over the course uh, of a two-year or four-year period, whatever that, that period may be, but that holds them out from getting that loan. What's the impact then on the city and, and the, the housing sector within the city? Take the example of Philadelphia. What's, what, what was the impact that you found here? Well, I mean, the impact on the city is tremendous, and the impact on the racial wealth gap is even bigger. I mean, one of the things that we talk about in the story is that the average African-American is – the average white person, white family in America is worth 15 times as much as the average African-American family. Now, you know, white people in this country don't make 15 times as much money as African-Americans, but the fact that the banks – and other institutions appear to be locking African-Americans out of home ownership at rates that we have not seen since the Jim Crow era. Um, it, it creates huge change in terms of people's ability to get ahead. Uh, we found uh, that in an era of gentrification, yeah. uh, where for the time, uh, you know, in generations, you have like a lot of upperly mobile whites wanting to live in these historically uh, black and Latino neighborhoods in the inner city that banks are preferring uh, to lend to the white applicants and that this is leading to a lot of disruption and change in many neighborhoods. You know, I often ask myself if, you know, gentrification should be good for the existing residents, right? Like, if you're in a neighborhood with a lot of blight and vacant storefronts and then there's new arrivals in the neighborhood that are increasing property values and, uh, you know, that there are new businesses that are serving these new residents, then as a, as a longtime resident, 
that should benefit you. Your property values go up. You should be able to refinance your home on better terms. You should be able to take money out to send your kids to college. Why is that not happening? It's because when those longtime residents in these neighborhoods try to fix up their home with a home equity loan, they get turned down, but the white newcomer is able to buy a house. Well, and and we see that uh, to a degree here in Philadelphia, and it's been one of the things that has led kind of a change in certain neighborhoods here in Philadelphia where you used to have uh, run-down houses uh, that weren't being occupied, and obviously you have building companies, uh, people that have wealth behind them coming in and putting in brand new, beautiful inner inner city structures. But the the cost of these homes end up being three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, which in a lot of cases is not affordable. Yes. So that is a barrier to entry. Right. There is a huge affordability problem in this country in many major cities. On the other hand, there's a lot of people, especially in a city like Philadelphia, which is a homeowner city, right? It's not like New York where most low-income people are renting. It's a homeowner city. And, um, and, and many of the other cities in our analysis are that same way. And so those folks who already own property, uh, they should be able to take advantage of that, uh, of that growth in property value improvement of the situation and build wealth and pass that wealth on to their family members or, uh, you know, pass it on in other ways through improving the housing stock or sending someone to college or something. And we found that, you know, you know, in Point Breeze, the rapidly gentrifying neighborhood in Philly that we we, we honed in on, uh, whereas, you know, it's an 80 percent African-American neighborhood most of the home loans are going to whites, but it's not because African-Americans aren't applying. They're just getting turned down. We're talking with uh, Aaron Glanz of Reveal, senior reporter there, uh, behind the reporting that they have done for the Center for Investigative Reporting about home ownership amongst African-Americans in cities. 844-WHARTON is the number if you would like to join in with a comment or a question. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. One of the things you also bring up, and, and in part w- with here in Philadelphia, is this this process called redlining, which is basically taking certain parts of cities, certain neighborhoods, and almost making them devoid of an ability to get a loan for a property in that particular part of town. Yes. So this was legal and government policy back in the 1930s. During the Great Depression, the federal government drew lines on maps. They labeled some neighborhoods hazardous to lend in. They colored them red um, on the maps. That's where we get the word redlining. And those neighborhoods were left out of economic growth after World War II. And many neighborhoods that are experiencing blight today were redlined uh, you know, 70, 80 years ago. The question that we raise in our story is, okay, here we are. 2018, we're 50 years after the Fair Housing Act where that sort of behavior was made illegal. Why is it that today we continue to see some of the same behavior from these lending institutions? 844-942-7866 is the number. If you would like to join in with your comments or questions, 844-942-7866. So as you kind of alluded to before, this is because of this, this is changing a lot of neighborhoods in cities across the U.S. 
Yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a very important law that was signed by President Jimmy Carter in 1977 called the Community Reinvestment Act. And it says that banks are supposed to lend in historically blighted and low-income neighborhoods, and they have to reach out and affirmatively try to find qualified applicants. I mean, they don't have to give a loan to an unqualified applicant, but they have to go look and try to find people to lend in. And um, what we found in our in our investigation is that if you looked at who got loans in these quote-unquote best census tracts um, in gentrifying neighborhoods, they were invariably, you know, white newcomers or, or sometimes Asian newcomers, uh, even if the uh, people who historically lived in that neighborhood were African-American or Latino. But the banks would not get in trouble for that. Uh, in fact, 99% of banks have been rated satisfactory or outstanding uh, on their Community Reinvestment Act assessments for regulators since the bust. And the reason for that is that the law that was passed back in the 70s was race neutral and didn't anticipate that we would live in an era of gentrification. And so basically uh, banks are cherry picking certain people to lend to in these communities, and it's having a huge impact on the way that we relate to our neighbors. And, uh, you know, I mean, like here in the Bay Area, from San Francisco, right? And we have a huge tech boom and yeah. a housing crisis, and people feel like they're being forced out. Um, and, I, you know, I say like, well, you know, you have people like throwing eggs at people who are for Google and standing in front of Google buses. And I say, well, who is financing this, right? Yeah. Who is it that's giving the loan to the Google engineer? That's fine. That person should be able to buy a house, but not giving a loan to somebody else. What is the uh, what is the impact on the mortgage industry right now? And, and I say that because uh, in terms of if they are doing something that is not by the book here, is there a concern of repercussion by the federal government at this point? Well, um, you know, one of the things we point out in our story is that even though this disparity is pervasive and national, there's been very few enforcement actions. The Justice Department brought only a handful of cases under President Obama uh, in the first year of the Trump administration. The Justice Department did not sue a single lender uh, for failing to lend to people of color. Um, we see in the wake of our story a lot of interest um, from, uh, you know, for example, in Philadelphia, the state treasurer is uh, has opened an investigation. The state attorney general is opening an investigation. Uh, civil rights groups are pouring through our through this data uh, to try to see if there might be cases to be made in other cities. And um, and I think that um, you know these banks and lending institutions have benefited from. Um, a real lack of oversight. Right. And now in the wake of our report, I think that they're going to find they need to be a little bit more on the ball and responsive or else they may face some sort of, um, of sanction. Again, the way for you to join in by phone is 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 or comments via Twitter at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Lee is in New York City. Lee, go ahead. Okay, good morning. Thank you for taking the call. I want to compliment you on your show. It's so well produced. Thank you. And uh, since I'm a Wharton grad, I'm particularly proud. It's on uh, Sirius 111. There you go. 
<laughs> uh, it wasn't a public service announcement. It's related <laughs> to the, your guest. We'll, we'll, we'll take it. Public. We'll take it anyway. <laughs> I'll repeat it at the end then, too. <laughs> but the, uh, the um, issue I'm calling about, I'm a litigator in New York City. Um, right on the issues that your guest is dealing with, only where minorities and others are approved for loans. This was usually 10 or 12 years ago before the financial crisis, but they were parked into what are called doomed-to-fail loans with extraordinarily high interest rates or oppressive terms, and then they end up in courts on the verge of losing their homes. Banks have very high-powered litigators fighting for them to take people's houses back, but there are very few of us on the borrower's side trying to keep them in. I wondered if your investigation had included any insights into how the system works to keep or prevent people from staying in their homes when they're the victims of this type of loan. Yeah, we didn't look at the subprime kind of loans that uh, crashed the economy and uh, caused so many foreclosures. And the reason for that is that we see less of those now. And I felt as a journalist that a lot of us were playing Right. Like, uh, you know, litigators like yourself are really trying to go after the people who did so much wrong um, in the boom and right after the bust and liquidating people's properties and selling them out from under them. And that's yeoman's work. We wanted to know why is it that if conventional mortgage lending, like the good loans, um, are up 95 percent since the bust, which is true, then why is it that people of color are not getting and that's uh, that's where we centered our own reporting, uh, because that was, we thought, uh, had been undercovered. As a non-practicing former journalist, sort of, uh, and a current litigator to suggest a new avenue of research for you. Yes, absolutely. It's a great topic. Thanks, Lee. All the best. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Even though you didn't necessarily touch on it in this, but the the, the predatory loan industry obviously uh, plays to a, a wide range of people. Um, and and I, I don't know how many of, of people that would have been part of what happened with the housing bubble several years ago would have been in this dynamic that you really looked at. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Although I wonder, time has passed. People should have had the opportunity to uh, restore their credit. Right. And yet we still see the disparity. So, um, so that's the concern for me is if we were having this conversation in like 2013 and somebody lost their house in 2009 or 2010, uh, sure, their credit is going to be ruined. But now here we are a full decade after the bust. Uh, people who lost their home back then uh, should have had the opportunity to repair their credit and generate some savings in the meantime. So I think that uh, we really have to uh, – ask what's going on here. I mean, there is another thing when you talk about predatory lending and payday loans, there's a lot of screwed up things with the way credit score is calculated that we could get into, which could be hurting people. For example, if you have a payday loan, um, it only reports to the credit bureau if you miss a payment. Right. So you're almost guaranteed to have a lower credit score because, you know, it's different than like a traditional car loan where every time you make a payment, your credit score goes up and it only goes down if you miss one. Right. So, you know, there is definitely some issues there that bear uh, further exploration. Let me ask you this quickly. we got about two minutes left. Um, 
in terms of this research, what is the reaction that you are hearing uh, off of this story and more specifically within some of these big cities? Because I would think that as this story and obviously it has played out for a while, this becomes an issue partly for government at a higher level, the federal government. But really, I think a lot of this plays to, to city and local governments, correct? Yeah, well, that's where we've been the main action after the story. There's been some reaction on Capitol Hill, but both of us know that uh, Congress is um, has perhaps never been more dysfunctional. And and, so, yeah, and busy, um, yes, yeah. Yes, and busy with many, many things on many sides, right? Yeah. Uh, but, we don't, as I was saying earlier, you know, in Philadelphia, where we centered our reporting, there is action at the city council today. The state uh, attorney general and the state treasurer have both opened their own investigations. And I anticipate that in the coming days and weeks, as, um, you know, as lawmakers uh, begin to dig into this information restrictions, that we may start to see similar action um, in other states that were spotlighted by our investigation. As you mentioned earlier, many, many states in the South, um, but even out in California, there are three cities in California where we found uh, uh, systemic denial of people of color. Two cities in Washington state in the northwest, um, you know, Detroit, St. Louis, San Antonio. So there's a lot of states where state officials uh, might want to become interested. Great having you with us today, Aaron. Thanks very much for your time. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. By the way, you can uh, see the reporting that Aaron did if you go to revealnews.org, reveal, R-E-V-E-A-L, news.org. The story is titled Kept Out, and you'll be able to read uh, the story and more about that. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.